The Button Ski Hanger is a patented ski storage fixture that safely stores alpine skis regardless of length, width, or shape. This means that your fat powder skis can now be stored next to your narrower carving skis, your race skis, and your kid skis. For more information, visit their website, buttonskirack.com. The Button Ski Hanger is also available for purchase at amazon.com. So make your purchase today. The button ski hanger is simply better for your skis. Hestra knows hands. For over 80 years, Hestra has been producing the highest quality, warmest gloves you can own. Crafted with durable, form-fitting leathers, they are made with the end user in mind. Don't let cold hands end a great day of skiing or snowboarding early. With hundreds of different options, you'll find a Hestra glove that fits your needs. Check out Hester Gloves at HesterGloves.com. That's H-E-S-T-R-A-G-L-O-V-E-S.com. Or at your local ski shop or wherever Hester Gloves are sold. Hester Gloves, taking care of your hands since 1936. Welcome to New England Ski Journal's Base Camp Podcast, presented by Country Ski and Sport. Ski season is here, and it's time to gear up at Country Ski and Sport. Shop now for your best preseason deals at any of their three locations in Hanson, Quincy, and Westwood, Mass. Or shop online at countryski.com. Hey, everybody, and welcome into the New England Ski Journal's Basecamp Podcast. I am your host, Eric Wilber. I'm joined by always by my co-host, partner in crime, Mike Specian, who is uh, joining us from Zoom from his living room den, rehabbing from his knee surgery. He's almost there, folks. Mike, how are you? Eric, I'm doing awesome, man. Uh, you know, thinking about getting on the hill, I'm almost there, man. Good, good. Well, so what? what is the target date? What are we looking for? Not date, but like last week of February, first week of March. What What are we circling on the calendar? Well, my goal still is February 1. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a moving target. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see where it goes after I get back from Salt Lake and have to be on a show floor for three days. We'll, we'll see. But, uh- you know, that Feb 1 and if it's Feb 15th or March 1, It'll be what it'll be, but everybody has to promise me when I'm out there, it's got to be nice, soft corduroy for the first few days. Well, we're, we're saving it all for you, Mike. Okay. We are, we're, we're hoping and crossing our fingers that by the time February rolls around, we are in what you have always wished for a consistent winter. One thing you will not be doing for at least First thing out, out of the gate, I can imagine, is you're not going to go right for the for the moguls, right? I think we, we're going to train that knee a little bit before you start hitting the bumps. Yeah, no. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll take a nice, soft powder day in the trees before I'm ready to go tackle bumps where there might be a little firmness underneath. So, hey, it's all good. Will there be bumps this year or is that something you're like, yeah, it's not not a big deal. I'll, I'll, I'll work towards it next year. Yeah. My my view at this point is that I have no anticipation of banging the bumps. Maybe, maybe late spring when they soften up and they're fun and yeah. not not too heavy. But hey, I've been there, done that. It'll be here again. 
Well, don't push it. We we wish you all the best, and hopefully you'll be on the on the hill with us soon. You can also watch the Bump Skiers this weekend at Waterville Valley, where they're hosting the World Cup. First time they're hosting a freestyle World Cup. I mean, obviously Waterville has a a deep history in in the World Cup races. Uh, this is the first time that the birthplace of freestyle skiing is actually going to host a freestyle World Cup event, and this is a big deal. Obviously. Add it to Killington now that New England has two uh, World Cup events that we hope that this one's going to be an annual event, just like the Killington event. So it, it's ski racing, ski demonstration, and the U.S. ski team more and more coming to New England, Canada. Tremblant hosted a, a World Cup event earlier this year, right after Killington. Ski racing and, and the U.S. ski team coming to New England again this weekend. And excitement, exciting scene to be sure at Waterville Valley this weekend. Oh, it's going to be absolutely phenomenal. It's true grit. It's such a perfect hill. The perfect hill for bump skiing. Is it going to be Deer Valley-esque that we all watch the Deer Valley event? Uh, Probably not at that level. But once again, the beauty of New England, just like Killington's World Cup, is that we've got a population base so close that that place should be rocking. Yeah, it's going to be fun. And, of course, Waterville is, like I said, the birthplace of freestyle skiing, quote-unquote, which is a moniker or a nickname that it truly deserves, right? It, it, this is not like, hey, let's get PR to write something up for the brochure. Birthplace of, of freestyle skiing. Yeah, go with it. No, this is like the 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 event that they had there in 1971. Correct. The freestyle, the masters of freestyle skiing It was called the first national championships of exhibition skiing. The brainchild of Waterville Valley's Tom Cochran and former skiing magazine editor Doug Pfeiffer, who we just lost over the past year. This event, this is the one that introduced Wayne Wong and, and the, the Wong banger and Susie Chafee and, and Chapstick Susie and all these names of the early seventies that were emerging as the skiing I guess icon is is a fair enough word to to use, right? I, I would say skiing royalty back then because yeah. freestyle was so huge. Well, it was like what I was not I was a, a zygote if I was anything back then in 1972, but it was when you look back on it and you watch documentaries like The Dog Days of Skiing and you get to understand a little bit what sort of pop culturey movement these skiers had, right? Because they they moved the needle one way or the other, whether it was Wayne Wong in a Juicy Fruit commercial or Chapstick Susie in the Chapstick commercial, they became household names. And then things started happening. People started getting hurt. Freestyle movement changed. It became more regulated. And it's basically turned into what we have now, judging every movement, judging timing, judging everything in order to win that event. So it's going to be fascinating to talk to our guests that we're going to have on on this episode and discuss some of the changes, right? Freestyle in 1972 versus freestyle in 2024 and the massive, and can we even compare the two, right? Is there a similar thread at all between 72 and what we see today? Well, freestyling in 71, 72 to me was hot dogging. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really was hot dog the movie. Everybody that I knew had to have a pair of Olin Ballet skis. I had a pair of Olin Ballet skis with Spademans on them and my Scott boots. You know, doing doing ballet 
on the hill. And it was so cool. The first time I did a pole flip, I was like, wow, this is awesome. If anybody's ever tried it or hasn't tried it, it is pretty cool, but don't try to do it on a pair of 187s. Ain't going to work. Those were the days when expression in skiing became real. It wasn't just the discipline. It was the expression and the artistic part of the skier. I would equate freestyle back then more to big mountain skiing than I would to freestyle today, where it's very, very dictated as to what you have to do and how you have to do it. But we're going to, the guests are going to tell us how it differs. They are. And I want you to introduce them in just one second. But I want, I, I first of all, before I forget, I want to ask why we haven't, why haven't we done an episode of this podcast yet? with a resurrection of the ballet movement, the ski ballet movement, because I think just the way that you traditionally or, or exquisitely told the tale of how you did your ski ballet was fascinating. And I think could make a great one hour podcast. I think we can do that. That, that would be a lot of fun Mm -hmm. bringing back some of the ballet skiers of old, like the Wayne Wong's, but it was totally artistic a friend of mine got me involved in it when I was in junior college, and it was just a totally different game when it came to showing the artisticness of a skier. Right. I would love to do it. That's, it's just fascinating to me. You, you, I've, I've never participated in any ski ballet competition, but I do understand its, its point, its juncture in this short juncture in ski history. And it'd be fascinating to kind of get some of the, 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 the best at their craft and to understand what started this movement and eventually why it died down. Well, uh, I, I think what I'll do, Eric, is I will reach out to Ch- Susie Chafee and also Colleen Stewart, two females that were first off renowned, but also sort of embraced this whole thing. I'll see what I can do to get them. Awesome. And Harkin Banks is the obviously the ski ballet champion, though. Why don't you introduce who we have coming up on today's show? Well, we have something special here with the Waterville World Cup. In 1971, when the event was held, as Eric stated, two skiers finished second and third. One was out of Vermont, Ken Torfier. I'll screw up spelt, pronouncing the last name, but he okay. will correct me. What's yes. that? Teferi? Teferi, I believe. And Teferi, yes. I believe. Tor- Tori and his uh, son is a friend of mine. Okay. Um, out of Vermont was number two. He actually beat out the renowned Wayne Wong, who was number three. These guys were both on the podium at the time. They were both fighting for a prize. That prize was a Chevy Corvette for the winner of this event. Um, I'm, I'm just going to be, I'm, I'm stoked to talk to these two because we talk about Michaela Schiffer and we talk about Bodie Miller. Now we're going to talk about the guys that really created a movement in hot dogging and freestyle. Absolutely. It's going to be a good one and fascinating to get their take on, on what was a seminal moment in, in skiing history, right, right here in New Hampshire. We will talk to Wayne and Ken right after this. 
At 4,237 feet, Sugarloaf is one of the largest ski areas in the east and second highest peak in the state of Maine, trailing only Mount Katahdin. Boasting over 1,300 acres of open terrain and a vertical drop of nearly 3,000 feet, Sugarloaf offers a wide variety of terrain for all ability levels. A historic winter is ahead with the debut of West Mountain. It's the largest terrain expansion in the Northeast since the late 1970s, adding 12 new beginner and intermediate trails, 88,000 feet of snowmaking pipe, and 246 HKD snowmaking guns. Sugarloaf is a destination not to be missed. Stay slopeside and plan your trip today at sugarloaf.com. Discover what you've been missing when you visit Burke Mountain, the last little corner of Vermont. Located only seven miles off Interstate 91, the slopes are closer than you think. Take advantage of their incredible midweek deals like $45 Monday through Friday lift tickets or Wicked Wednesdays where three people can ski or ride for the price of one. That's right. You and two of your friends can ski and ride for just 15 bucks a piece every Wednesday non-holiday. Incredible. To learn more, book your overnight stay at the Ski In, Ski Out Burke Mountain Hotel or purchase lift tickets, visit SkiBurke.com. Welcome back into the Basecamp Podcast. Joining us on the Zoom line and the phone line, we're pleased to have freestyle legends, icons, Hall of Famers, Wayne Wong and Ken DeFerry. I hope I pronounced that right, Ken. I keep messing it up in my head. First off, Ken, how do you pronounce your last name? It's Toffrey. Toffrey. There we go. Thank you very much. Wayne Wong and Ken Toffrey are with us. Two names that need no introduction if you know anything about 1971 in Waterville Valley. It's going to be a pleasure to talk to them. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to reconnect with you too, Ken. Man, it's been too many years. Same here. Thank you. Well, you you guys really set a bar at Waterville Valley in 1971. Now that we're on the cusp of the World Cup being back at Waterville Valley. We want to we want to hear some of the excitement from when you guys kicked off freestyle at Waterville. Wayne, you hitchhiked across the country to be able to make the first national championships of exhibition skiing at Waterville Valley. What was anticipation like for that event? Well, okay, so what had happened was I was going to Vancouver City College at that time in, in British Columbia. And there was an ad in Skiing Magazine that said, uh, who are the best skiers in the country? Come back to Waterville Valley and we'll see who the best skiers are. So my friends convinced me that I should go back and, and participate in this event, especially because uh, on my home local mountain at Mount Seymour, I was the local hot dogger and I had all these tricks that I had been inventing along the way in the late 60s. So my friends said, yeah, you got to go back to that event and unleash all those tricks that nobody had ever seen before. So I ended up getting a airline ticket to Montreal, took a bus from Montreal to Concord, New Hampshire, and I had no idea where Waterville Valley was. I figured I'd hitchhike from there somehow to get up there. And luckily, I ran into a couple of young skiers heading up to Waterville that are actually the cannon, and they picked me up and dropped me off at Waterville. Great story. Ken, now you're a Vermont kid at that point, and you're in the, the New England freestyle movement. Uh, what were your initial thoughts on what Tom Cochran was doing at Waterville? Well, he was uh, going to bring all the supposed best skiers in the country to uh, to that event and uh, win some money. 
I hadn't really planned on going only as a spectator, but my friends signed me up to compete. So Waterville's driving distance for me, so it was a piece of cake to get there. What what were the prizes? I can ask both of you guys. What were you what were you going after? Well, one was a Corvette, first place, two thousand dollars for second place prize, and I believe it was a thousand dollars for third place. Yeah, I mean, in the ad, in the ad, actually, they had, uh, they didn't announce any prize money or Corvettes or anything like that. It was just come back and see. And once we got there, they had got Chevrolet to come in as their title sponsors, which came up with the with the money for the car and for the prize money. So that was all new once once we got there. Those are big prizes in 1971. I mean. That that's real. That that must have set you sort of raised some goosebumps on you guys, thinking that you could win a Corvette out of this deal. Well, for me, I it wasn't necessarily. I wasn't drawn there necessarily by the Corvette or the money, but for me to actually showcase what could be done on skis was really kind of the deal for me, and to perhaps meet some of my skiing idols, heroes uh, that I'd seen in like the Hart Ski movies, like Tommy Leroy or Herman Goldner, and, and just the likes of those, Susie Chaffee. Man, 21-year-old kid from Vancouver, Canada, walking on the same arena with these guys was, was uh, rewarding enough. I want to ask both of you, Ken, I'll start with you. This was the brainchild of, of Tom and, and Doug Pfeiffer, obviously, who passed away earlier this year. And Doug was such a huge, I, I don't know what the word is, Icon, got it. Person in charge of the freestyle movement. Um, how did he affect, how did he and his freestyle sense of, of his freestyle sense of mind affect your lives, your careers? Yeah, that was exciting for uh, Tom to set that whole thing up to bring all these uh, skiers throughout the country. And uh, I only met Tom a couple of times, but it was cordial. And I thanked him for having this event. Doug Pfeiffer, he would stop by my ski shop here on his way through. And I guess he was icon and skiing magazine, obviously. And he gave me a nickname that's been carried on for me for quite some time. And he used to call me Ken Rubberlegs. <laughs> that's, that's hilarious. Wayne, what about you? What, what, is, what comes to your mind when Doug Pfeiffer is mentioned? Okay, so a little bit of the back story behind which I think people should know. Tommy Corcoran, who had just come off the U.S. Alpine ski team developing Waterville Valley, he and Pfeiffer were at a New England ski show or something like that. And they had this discussion as who were the best skiers on the mountain. And Tommy Corcoran, being the Alpine ski racer, said, well, it's obviously the Alpine ski racers. And Doug Pfeiffer, who was editor-in-chief of skiing at that time, and a rebel in ski technique and was one of the co-founders of TSIA. He said, Tommy, I beg to differ with you. What about the guys that are doing the jokes? What about the guys that are skiing on the backside of the mountain? What about the guys that are doing air flips on skis? Let's, let's have a contest and really see who the best skier on the mountain is. So now all of a sudden they, they decided to bring in some of the best alpine ski racers in the, in that, in that time frame. And some of the local hot doggers from all over the country. So that's where the Chevrolet sponsorship came in to, with the prize money to draw 
these different athletes from all over the country to participate. And what about you, Ken? Yeah, I, I agree with Wayne on that. His freestyle is, has come a long way because of those two, without question. And they innovated the whole thing from the very beginning. And it was exciting, and it was confined to one slope, and people could watch that, all contained in a small area. So it drew a pretty big crowd. Yeah, it was long long before we had TV cameras up and down the hill watching a Michaela Schifrin, of course. Right. You know, at every at every point of a GS run. To both of you, Wayne, I'm going to start with you on this. When we think of freestyle today, we think of moguls and aerials. That's pretty much what we think of freestyle. Athletes are, Eric and I discussed this earlier, athletes are training on tramps. They're training on airbags. And a lot of it's gymnastics. What did the word freestyle entail in 71, 72? And how did you both train for it? Because there was ballet, there was this, there was that. Give us an idea what what the hot dog movement was all about. Well, I for me, I didn't even know what freestyle skiing was. I don't think that even became a terminology till a little bit later on. Now, we were hot doggers, basically the, the guys with show-offs on the mountain. And I think the term freestyle came into play when they wanted to legitimize the sport because they saw this as a new dimension in skiing. And so they didn't want to call it hot dogging anymore. They wanted to, you know, make it kind of mainstream and more acceptable by the general public. So the term freestyle came about. And what about you, Ken? I, I mean, how did you train for these events? And what at Waterville, what exactly what was the event at that point? That's uh, pretty interesting. I, I only back then skied about five times a year. And I was involved in my business so much, but I did get out and ski and I I worked out with a lot of small weights and reputation type things, but nothing for bulk. And I I was always in good shape at that time. And so when I went to to ski, I didn't have to worry about faltering because I was unfit to do the job. So it was... Quite challenging there, though, without question. So, well, yeah, well before, go ahead, Mike. before we go on to a couple other questions here, what exactly was the event at Waterville that we're talking about? Because we're thinking about moguls. We're thinking about aerials. What exactly, how would you describe that event in 71? Ken, do you want to take that? Yeah, I will. And, and the, the, the whole trail had a, a great bump run in the very beginning and, then it had a couple of vertical whales that were about 20 feet apart. And uh, you could go off that jump or, or not. You could use whatever part of the trail you wanted to. And to me, that's what freestyle is, using the whole terrain. Now it's become more regimented, but back then you could use the whole trail. And uh, it was challenging in the sense that some of the jumps were Wow, if you didn't hit them right and you landed on the uphill of another one, it was not good at all. So you had to be perfect to make a good run. And you were pretty close to perfect because Herman Gallner was the winner, but you came in second. So what kind of moves did you did you make on your runs to, uh, to get that honor? Well, I, I did use the whole trail without question. And, and like I said, I mentioned the whale bumps that were vertically 
up and down the hill there. And I went through the, the bump run to get to that. And I really had a flawless bump run. And then when I hit the, the whale, I did a daffy over that. And I managed to go far enough, about 20 feet, to land on the downhill side of that whale on the other side. And then I went on down through, and there was another bit of moguls. And I did like a a Charleston partway down and a split off one of the other jumps and had a nice smooth run. It was what I considered flawless. And I did a little rubber leg movement at the bottom and and got through the finish. The only problem I had when somebody put a microphone in front of your face, I couldn't talk because I think I held my breath. <laughs> You're yeah. doing well today, Ken. <laughs> Do you think if you yeah, if, they, if you mention some of those names to an eighteen year old kid, they know what you're talking about between rubber legs and the daffy and all the the, the all those the, the the hot dog terminology? I I don't think they probably would. <laughs> <laughs> Trust yeah. me. I, spoiler alert: they would not. No. Yeah. An interesting side note on that: the run was called True Grit, and it really kind of defined. What, how the sport was going to evolve because as Ken said, the top part was very steep and full of mogos. And in the middle section, there was a lot of these whales or big bumps, big jump areas. And then it kind of smoothed out to this long flat area at the finisher, finisher. But it's a fairly long run from the top to bottom and with all terrain interpretation from the top to the bottom. And what you did in between was up to you to do it excite the judges and get their attention. So after that event, it became very uh, noticeable that there were guys that could see bumps really well on the top part. There were guys that could do amazing aerials in the middle section, and there were guys that could do tricks down through the bottom and through the finish area. So they kind of saw that and said, wow, maybe we need to define the sport a little bit more and break it down into mogul skiing aerials, and stunt and ballet. So that's how the disciplines were actually developed, just because of the terrain interpretation and the skiers that were doing what they did best on, on, those, on that part of that run. That, that is, that's an incredible analogy, Wayne, of how we got to where we are today. Back then, you finished third behind Ken, yet your name has become synonymous with hot dogging and what what you helped create here. You crashed trying to do the Wong Banger in your first run, vaulting yourself forward over your poles. How did this come? How did this move define you in the long run? <laughs> so on the on my local mountain that I was skiing on, teaching skiing at one day it was quite foggy and. Visibility wasn't great. And I ended up running into this really steep transition. And it started, my ski tip stuck. And it's, I started to go over the tips of my skis. And instinctively, I stuck my poles out in front of me and vaulted and did a complete flip and landed back on my skis again. I go, holy cow, that's a pretty cool little trick. So that's how the, the wong banger came out. I was like banging into this wall and doing a pole flip and landing on my feet again. So that was what was kind of exciting about that era in skiing, 
that we were inventing things and naming things that we invented as our na- names. That's that's inc- that's incredible. Yeah. So so as part of my whole thing to go back to Waterville to compete, my guy said, "Okay, you got to do this because you have the Wong Banger and you have the Wong Mill and you have a few other tricks that nobody had seen before." And so I had planned to unleash the Wong Banger to the world <laughs> on the third mogul on the top of True Grit. And I completely blew it. I missed it. And I, I said to myself, I came 3,000 miles to blow it on the, on the third mogul. That, was, that wasn't great. But a- anyways, at the end of the event, it turned out really well for me. Excellent. So, so hot doggers were a tight knit group. Do you guys still keep in touch with any any of your fellow comp- competitors, Hall of Fame reunions, etc.? I do. I, I, we have a circle of friends out west here that we competed with, and we book has been amazing to be a connection for us and for us to communicate that way and share our our skiing experience to this day. And how about you, Ken? Well, I, I converse with Wayne through other people. And so I say, well, if you see Wayne, tell him I said hi. <laughs> they would come and say, That's my favorite kind of conversation, right? It's like, hey, if you see so-and-so, let them know this. It's, right. it's always great. Well, yeah. well, I still run into, of course, I run into Dino Dudnack and that whole group, um, you know, you, you guys really were so cohesive as you built out this new almost a new sport yeah that that's true i I see dino too once in a while at the ski shows or whatever and we can we converse but i i i work with a new generation of freestylers and we do so much work with their skis tuning and so on and so forth their boot fitting and their stance alignment that it's a younger generation that come in store I've kind of lost touch with a, a lot of the people that I used to ski with, like uh, uh, Corky Fowler, Scott Brookbank, Eddie Ferguson. And we introduced freestyle skiing to France, and, and we were sponsored by Air France and Marlboro Cigarette and Ham's Beer and Annie for Most Productions. But I, I have lost touch with those guys. I often wonder what they're doing, and, and uh, I hope they're all well. That, those those are some remarkable names because we've all heard them. That's phenomenal. Wayne, yeah. I gotta, I, I'm know, sorry. Unfortunately, we're all getting to the age now where we are losing a lot of friends. And Eddie Ferguson passed last year, and so did Corky Fowler, unfortunately. And but through through our freestyle family and through our, our Facebook communications or whatever, we we stay in touch, and when we Unfortunately, we hear some of these sad news, but it also brings back great memories, like Kenny said, being able to ski with all these great skiers. Wayne, I, I got to admit, I'm a little too young to have witnessed the hot dog movement, but you know, I do, I do remember the Juicy Fruit commercial, and, and, and obviously that is burned in my brain. And I wonder, when you compare it, we know names now, and we have celebrities. We have Michaela, we have Bodie, we have any kind of collection of skiing names that are out there. But I almost would argue that you as a group, the hot doggers never really, I mean, you, nobody ever connected pop culturally with the world more than the hot dog movement. I wonder if you agree with that. Yeah, I, I think we were at a point in skiing 
where the general public was looking for something other than the, the Alpine ski racers just going from gate to gate. They wanted to see something more excitement. And what we did was we, we put on a show. And the, I think the cool part about what we did was that the general public could really relate to what we were doing because you didn't have to be this elite racer type to be a showcase. If you were just an intermediate level, you could go out there and do Royal Christie's and crossovers and 360s. You could ski bumps at your own pace. You could do a spread eagle off of a small bump. So I think this captivated the skiing public more than uh, Alpine racers had at that time. And uh, I think that was a big part of what helped our freestyle hot dog movement to progress as it did. With that being said, how do you, Ken, I'm going to come to you first with this because you said you work with a lot of today's freestyle skiers. How do you, how do you see freestyle difference differing between today and back in 71, 72? Wow. Freestyle today is really regimented. They, they ski down straight down a mogul field and it's, and it's almost like skiing down the trough. And these guys are all tremendous athletes. Don't get me wrong, but I think to make it a little more excited than it was just moguls be, before, but then they had to throw some jumps in to make it more exciting. And, and that, that really did happen and it did make it more exciting, but it's, it's very regimented. And before we used the whole trail to do whatever you wanted to do. And it, it's just evolved that way. And like I said, they're tremendous athletes and they do a great job. What about you, Wayne? You're, you're, you're traveling, skiing in Deer Valley, which has a pretty good event, as we well know. What are your thoughts on the difference between the two today and uh, I, I think, yeah, like in the, when we first started, it was truly freestyle. It really was. It was terrain interpretation. What you did was up to you. And as the sport progressed, the athletes started training, became more disciplined and more regimented. And the scoring and the judging and dictated so much change in the way the athletes see. And and I agree with Ken. The athletes today are amazing. They're phenomenal speed and agility. But then just watching the the skiers the come down, the fall line, boom, 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 it got kind of boring after a while. You could appreciate what they're doing, but every skier coming down looked pretty much the same. And so then they introduced the, the two jumps in the middle of the uh, run. And what's exciting now is that you're seeing these guys charge down through the middle of the mogul field and do a double twisting back somersault on the first jump and go down the middle section of the bumps and do another 1080 with a twist in it or something like that, which really kind of amps up the excitement level and the spectator appeal. So I think from that standpoint, there's a lot of great stuff to go and watch at, a, at one of these World Cup events. And just to, for them to maintain that speed, do those aerials in the middle of that, was amazing because what we did before was we to see a guy do a double twisting back somersault, that was off of a huge jump, not in the middle of a mogul field. So I give kudos to all these young athletes now they are skiing bumps. Ken, do you have any... Any tips for any athletes that fans going to the competition this weekend should watch? You mean at the upcoming? At Waterville, yes. 
I said this weekend because we'll, we're taping for, we'll put it on later in the month. So it's like okay. real time. I think it's going to be a phenomenal event. And these, these kids are, are so great. And uh, they're, they're in shape to do what they do. And uh, it'll be exciting to watch. Uh, I don't have any names to mention as to who who to watch, but you never know. There could be someone coming up in there to, to take over the whole event. You never know. You mean feel- like, like, a, like a write-in at Waterville in 1971? Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we got it. A friend signed me up. <laughs> okay. Oh, that's that's fantastic. Wayne, you used your platform in the ski industry, and your name is well known to raise over four, $40 million for Cystic Fibrosis Foundation. Tell us what about that organization that means so much to you. So, so I think this uh, happens to a lot of athletes, whether they're a football player, baseball players, or skiers. And you get to a point where you retire from the competitive arena, and all of a sudden you go, okay, now what do I do? What do I, where's my future? So I was very fortunate, and as my competitive career came to an end, I got involved with American Airlines and Waterville, actually. We started to do this Governor's Cup to raise money for, at, at that time, it was for the Crystal McCollis Sabbatical Trust Fund. And then we went on to Colorado and started raising money for cystic fibrosis. And as a result, I was I had a new career, and I had a real uh, awakening at my true calling in life, and that was what my skiing career, my championships or whatever, was to help raise money for these charitable causes. So over the course of about the last 30, 35 years, through different charities, and my main one was cystic fibrosis, but I did some, a lot of them for cancer research, for Easter seals and stuff. But in that time frame, uh, since the mid-'80s to present day, I've helped raise over $40 million for these charitable causes and helped me maintain my visibility out there and still stay quite involved in skiing. Thank you on that. Wayne, I don't have that many regrets in my skiing life, but – in my home in New Hampshire, we have one of the bibs from the Krista McAuliffe, one of the Krista McAuliffe races at Waterville Valley that my parents went to with my sister. And it was, I'm not exactly sure what the, the corporation my dad was working for at the time. I did not go because I decided I was rather go to Mount Orford with my high school ski club than go with my family to Waterville Valley. It's been one of my biggest regrets ever because not only were you there, they told me about what fun they had with guys like Bob Lobel, Buzz Aldrin, and just the the celebrity presence that was in, again, you, you talk about how doing this at an event really opened your eyes to cystic fibrosis. My sister ran to Buzz Aldrin and her astronomy interest exploded. She ended up going into, into school for geology and, and, and space rocks is what I call it. So you do definitely have such an impact on if even if it's just not raising forty million dollars for for charity, that in lives in doing these events you really do touch people. So so I just want to let you know that that I'm sorry I wasn't there that day because I would have loved to have skied with you. <laughs> it's really funny because they just inducted John Sununu into the Waterville Valley Hall of Fame just the other night, and I I, I was just going through some of my stuff the other day. 
and I happened to pull up my Crystal McGriff race gym as well That's great. that John had signed for me. So that was really cool. Very cool. That is unbelievable. I, re- I remember those times because I was up there for a couple of them. So in, in parting, Ken, what are you doing these days? And have you, you getting out on the hill? I feel like we're bearing the lead with Ken because he's been sitting there the whole time behind rows of boots and he's obviously in a I know. of some sort and we're just kind of teasing there's, it. There's a little history it. here. Yeah, I'm sitting in front of the my boot room where we do the boot fitting and and I got a little mini museum which you maybe see part of that behind sure me. Sure can. I I'm working about 7 days a week and I get out skiing 5 to 11 times a year. And I enjoy that, and I am I employ some 20 people here at the Totem Pole Ski Shop. I'm open so many hours, it's like we have a second shift. And I, I enjoy helping my son, by the way. He's the manager here now and and does a great job. I have a great crew. Tor- Torrin's a pretty good skier in and upon himself. Oh, he is indeed, yes. If sure. people wanted to swing, swing by the shop, where do they find you? Right upstairs. No, the actual <laughs> shop itself. Where's the shop itself? And or in the boot room. Thank you. Good. Yeah, he, he's he's in Ludlow, right right down the road from Okima. Perfect. There you go. In Okima. Yes. And Wayne, what have you been doing to keep yourself busy these days? So, first of all, I, I will be attending the World Cup at Waterville. Excellent. I will be there. For we'll that see you this event. weekend. Yes. And so if you see me, come out and say hi. I'd love to we'll chat with you a little bit. We can talk about the old freestyle days in person. I, I'm actually doing partnershiping up with Deer Valley Resort and started doing some VIP stuff for them. So I'll be spending quite a bit of this time with Deer Valley this winter. Well, I just want to thank both of you for joining us in this program. We're, we're so pleased to have you to talk about your event in 1971 and what a big deal that was for skiing history and to preview this weekend's World Cup event at Waterville. Wayne Wong and Ken Tofery, thank you very much for joining us. It was a pleasure, and we, we look forward to, to talking skiing history with you one day again in the near future. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Looking for expert ski, snowboard, and boot fitting advice? Stop into one of Country Ski and Sports' three locations in Quincy, Westwood, or Hanson, Mass., As a third-generation family business, Country Ski has provided Boston-area skiers with the best service and discounts in the area for over 50 years. Whether you are brand new to the sport or a seasoned veteran, Country Ski has the equipment and accessories for all ability levels. Don't forget to ask about their popular season lease program, which helps families eliminate the growing pains of purchasing new equipment every year as kids grow. And don't forget, any child 18 years or younger receives a free season pass to Saddleback Mountain with each lease from Country Ski. Visit CountrySki.com for all the latest information or to shop online. Eric, I'm a little older than you. I remember this this movement. I remember the hot dog movement as a whole. I thought it was kind of interesting when they when the question was asked about what is different from back in 71, 72 till 2023, 24? The statement was they were free to do anything they wanted anywhere on the hill. Boy, that reminds me of big mountain skiing these days. Right. It's expression, right? It's not about 
the hot dog movement, and boy, Wayne didn't like being called freestyle. It was the hot dog movement, not freestyle, hot dog. So the hot dog movement was about expression. And when we're trying to decide who's the best mogul skier, the best aerial skier, it's less about expression and more about technical skill. So that, that equation of the, of the movement, of the hot dog movement was totally squashed. And that was the most important component because that's the one that the public connected to, right? Yeah, it, it really was. I mean, it was, it was the freedom to express anything you wanted. What really got me about the conversation, Ken, I didn't realize he didn't sign up for the event that a friend signed him up. And he it's said he was skiing like five days a year at that point. And he goes and kicks the butt of some of the best skiers in the country and North America. Tremendous. There, there is a, there's a, a 30 year, I believe it was 30 year anniversary documentary that Dan Egan actually produced done for Waterville Valley. That's a pretty good assessment or a, a recap of that event in 1971. But if you haven't seen Dog Days of Winter, it used to be on Amazon Prime. I'm not sure where it is. Go, go seek it out. Documentary done probably about, I, I want to guess about 10, 12 years ago, has all the voices from the hot dog movement talking about what it meant for the sport and, and where it went and spends a good chunk of the movie on that event, quite obviously. So go check that out this weekend. But the World Cup is here. Go check, go find Wayne Wong. He's, he's looking to, to find some, 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 some people at Waterville going to see the, the, the bump kids. So tickets, I'm not, you'd have to go to watervillevalley.com just to check for ticketing information, but spectator tickets were costing $10 on Friday, $20 on Saturday. I'm not sure if they've upped that price since the, their normal price. There could be some last minute charge. Things get going on Friday, 8 a.m. to 8, 10 p.m., women's mogul qualifications inspection. And then it goes on and on and on all through the course of the two days. Mike, you will not be there. I'm, I'm hoping to be there and check out the World Cup arena. And it's going to be fun because I, I, after going to the World Cup races at Killington, sort of the what to expect and sort of the organization of everything. But when you go as a journalist or as a spectator, it's always impressive just seeing the precision that these competitions work in, whether it's workers behind the scenes, whether it's gatekeepers, whether it's the athletes themselves, whether it's the, the PR people, everything just works so smoothly. And for someone that's really scattered brain, that, that's really fascinating to watch. Yeah, it's, it's amazing when you go to these events how co- coordinated it is and how they do it from when Zerbriggen and Tomba were racing on World Cup at Waterville, and it'll be the same this time around. Unfortunately, I'll still be in Salt Lake City on the 27th. I'm going to miss it, but I would definitely be there for this particular event. And parking, free parking available, lots three through nine. Parking lot shuttles will be available which if Waterville Valley is a very welcome addition. Friday night festivities in Town Square. World Cup U.S. team introductions will be taking place uh, at 6 o'clock. World Cup live music with DJ Brett at 6.15. World Cup U.S. team autograph signing at 6.15. World Cup athlete bib draw at 7. That's always a big deal at Killington because of Michaela drawing a bib and all that. This At this one, it will probably be Hannah Soar. That will be the big deal. And then at 7.30, fireworks in Town Square. So it's going to be a party 
for sure this weekend at Waterville Valley. Just going to be a, a great old time to be had by all. The bump skiers, the best bump skiers in the world are coming to Waterville. And I mean, great. It's, it's going to be more than great. Having the world come to us here in New England, it's been a long time since we've had this caliber of bump skiers here in New England. Over the course of, of its history, Waterville Valley has hosted 16 competitions, including 11 Alpine World Cup races, four U.S. freestyle championships, one U.S. Alpine championship, and numerous free, free ski and snowboard U.S. Revolution tours. And this is the first time it is going to be hosting a freestyle World Cup event. So history being made at Waterville this weekend. Uh, can't wait to enjoy it. Mike, any last words? That's it. I hope everybody gets up there, enjoys it, takes in the event, and let's keep this season going. Absolutely. Mike, thank you very much for joining us, and thank you to the audience for joining us as well. This has been the Basecamp podcast from New England Ski Journal. I'm Eric Wilbur, and for my co-host, Mike Speechin, I hope everyone has a great time. Um, goodbye. New England Ski Journal's Base Camp is a Siemens Media podcast. Siemens Media, inspiring, informative, insightful.